Thank you, worship team. And I would like to invite you to pray with me, if you would, please. Father, we're grateful to you that you are a God who has spoken in these last days in your Son. And you have delivered through him, through the apostles and prophets, the word that we hold in our hands. Many of these things are deep things, and we pray that you would lead us into a deeper understanding this morning of who we are in Christ and who Christ is and how our relationship to him ensures our resurrection. And not only that, but the things to come, the finality of all things being brought back into accordance with the goodness of God as it was before the world was. Lead us into that understanding this morning, and we pray that your spirit would be alive and active and working in our hearts. In all these things we pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to just take a minute to turn in your Bibles to uh, Ephesians, excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, We're going to end in Ephesians. 1 Corinthians 15, and we're going to read verses 20 through 28 this morning. And if you are able, this is the word of God, and I invite you to stand as we read it this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 28. This is the word of God. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his order, Christ is first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. God's people said, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. We've been talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in chapter 15, and Chris has led us the last three weeks in some fantastic messages. And we understand that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most astounding event in history, in in biblical history, the most astounding event in, in human history. In fact, it is the most astounding event in cosmic history, in other words, the history of the universe. There is no greater event than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what the resurrection inaugurates and accomplishes is far beyond what happened on Easter in that empty tomb. Yes, he rose from the dead on Easter, but it was just the beginning. It was just the 
God set in motion on that, in that resurrection many, many things that bring the finality of Christ. The resurrection sets in motion all the events of the fulfillment of the plan of redemption. The reversal of the curse of sin and death that Adam brought to this earth. And it brings the restoration of all things to the way that they were before creation was, before it was interrupted by sin. Because God created the world and it was good and then sin interrupted it. And we have been dealing with it ever since. And what our passage is going to show this morning, that is going to be ultimately fulfilled through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the resurrection of Christ gives to us the hope of our resurrection. It shows the abolition of sin and death once and for all. And also the final restoration of all things to God. If you walk away from with this morning with those three things, that's what this passage is talking about this morning. The resurrection of Christ gives us the hope of our resurrection, ensures the abolition of sin and death, and secures the final restoration of all things to God. So let's begin um, by looking at verses 20 through 22 where we're going to see the certainty of Christ's resurrection guarantees ours because Christ has actually risen from the dead. It guarantees that we, in turn, will rise from the dead. Verse 20 says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Like we saw last week, without the resurrection of Christ, the result is catastrophic. It's despairing. We're we're pitiful people. This is a charade. What happens at 3021 South Sullivan Road and in every church throughout the world is just going through the motions. There's no substance to it. If the object of your faith is not real or it is false, we have nothing. And Paul made that argument that the resurrection is part of the gospel. And there are those who said, well, there is no resurrection from the dead. And the implications of that is that our faith is worthless. We're hopeless, pitiful people because our faith is placed in something that is not real. Put your faith in a bowling ball. It does just as much good. So we go now from the depths of despair that we saw how it ended with the verse passage last week to the heights of hope, because he says, but now Christ has raised from the dead. Yes, we dealt with the hypothetical that what if he didn't, but he encourages with, but he has. It's like on Easter morning, we say, he is risen, and we say, he is risen indeed. And that's really what verse 20 says. He has risen indeed. Indeed, he has risen from the dead. God has raised him, and that's the way it is It is portrayed throughout all of chapter 15. God raised him up. God is the one who did this. And then he goes on to say the first fruits of those who are asleep. So we say, now Christ has risen from the dead, comma, stop right there. So yes, up to this first comma. Okay, so your sins are forgiven. It's not hopeless. We're not helpless. Forgiveness is based upon the resurrection And he is raised, so our forgiveness of sins is is sure. But there's more. It's just the beginning. Because he says, 
he's raised from the dead, comma, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Those who are asleep, the figure of speech that Paul has used in the passage so far in 1 Corinthians 15, is those who have died. It is a metaphor for death, falling asleep. And he has said there have some, there are some in the time that, that Paul was writing to the Corinthians, some have fallen asleep in Jesus. They've fallen asleep in Christ. People who placed their faith in Christ have now died. And now Paul says Christ rose from the dead and he is the first fruits of those who are now dead in the grave because they will be raised as well. It's a guarantee because death continued on, and one day we will all die unless Christ comes back. And so for all those who have died in Christ up until his coming, we are, he is the first fruits, but it is guaranteed that we will be raised from the dead as well. First fruits is this idea of, of when, um, when there is a harvest that is brought in, and there was a uh, a sacrifice that was made, a grain sacrifice given in the book of Le- Leviticus. And they brought the, the first fruit, the first grain that, that they were able to harvest. And when they would bring that as a sacrifice in the, in the temple, and they would, it was a wave sacrifice, and they would say, this is the assurance of the harvest to come. This is the guarantee of what is to follow. This is the certainty of the harvest that is coming next. And Christ is that first fruits. He is the certainty of the harvest, which is us. We are the harvest. In Leviticus, uh, it tells about that, uh, that first fruit. Uh, and and it is basically, it was a, a sacrifice that was given the day after the Sabbath of the, the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In other words, a Passover. A Passover, they had Sabbath, which was Saturday, and then on Sunday was this feast that began, and they would come in and they would give, they were, they were, they were told to give this first fruit offering on the day after the Sabbath. What happened the day after the Sabbath? Christ rose from the dead. So he is that image of that first fruits, guaranteeing of the harvest that is to come. Fifty days later is another harvest that comes called Shavuot in Leviticus also. So he says uh, in in Leviticus 23, he says, You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. They shall be of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits of the Lord. There's another grain harvest that comes 50 days later. What happened 50 days later? Pentecost. So what was the first fruits on Pentecost? Those who were new believers, thousands of people came to Christ on the day of Pentecost, and it was just the beginning of those who have come to Christ, including us. We were in Jerusalem during Shavuot, Pentecost. They don't call it Pentecost. And for them, they are celebrating, um, part of it is the giving of Torah. And it is a big festival in all of Jerusalem, and everyone is dressed in their finery, and they're celebrating. But we celebrate that day of Pentecost that we are the first fruits, because he is the first fruits, and he has guaranteed our resurrection from the dead. It is inevitable. It is a certainty. It is sure. It's not just this thing about, oh, we, we have apologetics that Jesus rose from the dead, but he's the first fruits of our resurrection as well. By the way, the, we, we just sang this is a, 
you know, Christ and what we, we taste with him is a foretaste of what is yet to come. And the resurrection is that first fruits. It's a foretaste of what follows, which is those others who will be raised from the dead. And also the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. Romans 8.23, not only this, we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for our adoption as sons and the redemption of the body. Our resurrection. So we have given, been given the Holy Spirit who lives in us. He is the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance. And Christ's resurrection is the seal and the guarantee of our resurrection. So that is what we have to look forward to. Now in verses 21 and 22, Paul explains how our resurrection is guaranteed and why it is inevitable. 21 and 22 say this. For since by a man came death, by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Paul puts these two verses together and he shows uh, that this is why our resurrection is assured. The curse of Adam is death. The cure of death is Christ. Since by a man death by a man also the resurrection of the dead who is that first man adam because as in adam all die so also in christ all will be made alive the first adam didn't pass the test did he god gave him this test in the garden he said of all the trees you may freely eat but if you eat of this tree you will die you will surely die. And guess what he did? He ate and he would never pass the test. It was inevitable that Adam and Eve would ultimately uh, uh, fall to, to temptation as long as God sovereignly allowed evil in the garden. Adam would inevitably fall and God knew that and he already had a plan. And the failure of Adam ensured our failure. By a man came death and we are dead. Adam died spiritually, and he also died physically. As in Adam all die, so we all die. He's our father. We have his genes. You want to know why you do what you do? You want to know why you continually fall to sin? You want to know why you can't get it right? It's because of your father and your father's father and your father's father's father. And it goes all the way back to Adam because we're born into it. And we come by it naturally, both sin and death. We are in Adam in that sense, and that we just cannot help ourselves. Even if we did not have the sin nature, we would have fallen as well. But it has been passed along to us, and we pass it along to our children, and we will until it is finally done away with by Christ. And that's why the cure for death is Christ himself. It's interesting that it started in the garden, but it but the beginning of the end is in a garden tomb that is empty. Christ fulfills that. It all started in the garden. We, when we were in, in Israel, we went to the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, went to the Church of the Nativity. These are, are places where, you know, it, it, we, it may be, it may not be, where Christ was actually, his body was laid. It may be, it may not be, where, um, where Jesus was actually born in a cave. But one thing we did see was we saw Adam 
because you know, these holy sites where people, pilgrims are coming to see this wonderful place where Jesus was laid, they're pushing and shoving and get out of my way and, and cutting in line. And we see Adam at work. And they miss the very reason that they're there. But the cure for this is, is the death of Christ. And so we, we see then the, the necessity of our resurrection. We are inexorably tied to Adam. We cannot unchain and unburden ourselves from sin and death. But now we are inexorably linked to Christ. If you are in a rowboat with Adam, your father, out in the middle of the ocean under heavy seas, and that boat is going down, and you're chained to him with a heavy chain, Adam goes over, where are you going? You're going under. Because where Adam goes, you go. And you are tied to him. Where has he gone? Sin and death and all of us have gone down the drain. But now we are inexorably united with Christ and we are strapped to him, if you will. He is in us and we are in him because he says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That is all who believe in Christ will be made alive. And so we are in Christ. So what happens to Christ happens to us. So being united to him and being in Christ and him and us, when he goes up, where do we go? We go up as well. Was strapped in, uh, uh, in um, an airline seat for many, many hours this last week, as some of you, as some of you were. One thing I learned, when your seat is buckled and you're in the airplane, you go where the airplane goes. If it goes up, you're going up. If it goes down, you're going down. Same thing with Christ. If you are in Christ, your resurrection is guaranteed. It is inevitable. It cannot not happen, and that's what Paul is saying. You are connected with Christ, and you are secure in Christ. And as he was raised, you will be raised. Lesson for us. This is so important. Being in Christ changes everything for us. When he says in verse 22, so also in Christ all will be made alive, this little phrase, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, is found throughout the New Testament. I don't remember who the theologian was who said this, but there was a theologian who said, if I could only understand what the phrase in Christ really means my life would be transformed forever. Because when it says that we are in Christ, the scripture tells us that we are crucified with Christ and it is no longer we who live, but Christ lives in us. And the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. In our, in, in our book of 1 Corinthians, it says that, that we have been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. We are in him and, we, and he is in us. Both things are true at the same time. And so what does that mean? It means our lives should be transformed by that incredible truth that we are in Christ and Christ is in us. This is our identity this is who we are. This is where we are. This is what we have. 
We live in a world that pushes identity over everything, sexual identity and gender identity and racial identity and cultural identity. This is our identity. That's all you are, and being all you are is more than enough because he is more than enough. You are in Christ. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or black or white or rich or poor or whatever your identity might be that you might choose to, to, as a Christian, your identity is Jesus Christ. And that should be transformative in all that we do because what is true of Christ is true of us. He died for sin. We died to sin. He was buried. We were buried with him, Romans 6 says. He was raised from the dead. We have been raised to walk in newness of life. And his spirit is given to us to live out that identity the rest of our days. That is no small thing. Being in Christ changes everything for us. Not only now, but in the day that we will be raised from the dead. So Paul now is going to expand this discussion beyond just the the proof of Christ's resurrection. His resurrection and our resurrection is, is going to show it leads to the ultimate consummation of all things to restore them to how they were from the very beginning. And so in verses 20 through 26, the fact of the resurrection secures Christ's reign and rule. The fact that Christ has indeed raised from the dead, the fact that he is risen from the dead, and the fact that he is the first fruits and we will follow him is going to change all of history. It inaugurates the end times. It initiates and puts into motion many, many things that now must happen because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 23, but each in his own order, that is the resurrection, Christ the firstfruits, okay, we've already seen that. After that, those are Christ that is coming. So, Everyone in his own order, and this is a military term. There's a ranking system that happens. Christ of us is of first importance. He is raised first. He already has been raised. And now second, because he's raised and we are united with him, those who are Christ at his coming. The next thing that will happen is the return of Christ and the resurrection of those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. First Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That is what we have to look forward to. Christ the firstfruits, then those who are his at his coming. He doesn't say first, second, and third. He then says in verse 24, then comes the end. The end. This is an important uh, word about eschatology eschatology is the study of last things then comes the telos then comes the purpose then comes the unveiling then comes the end of all things then comes the goal for which it all has been moving toward which is this when he hands over the kingdom to the god and father when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. This happens in reverse order. We're going to see. 
He's going to abolish all rule and authority and power, and then he is going to hand over the kingdom to the Father. This is what Christ accomplishes with the resurrection and with our resurrection. This is the the purpose, the goal of all things. This is what Christ's resurrection signifies and accomplishes the final rule of God. So he's going, the argument goes beyond just, well, we need to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. No, the argument is Christ rose from the dead and it accomplishes everything else that comes. So Paul describes how the resurrection has set these things in motion and he hands these things over, but only before, after he abolishes all rule and authority and power. What are the rule, what is he talking about rule and authority and power? He's talking about the demonic reign, the satanic reign of, of, of the devil in this world is what he's talking about. Let me read to you a couple of uh, verses. In Ephesians 1, he says, it says, He raised, that God is, God raised up Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Later in chapter 6, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 4.3 If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, small g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. There's a ruler of this world. Yes, Christ reigns on high, but there's still a struggle that is going on. There is still a, a, a realm of the devil that he is keeping the world under his wraps. First John 5:19. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But earlier in First John, Paul said, or John said, "Do not love the world or the things of the world." For the things of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life are passing away. How do they pass away? Christ defeats them through his resurrection. So verses 25 and 26 say this. He must reign. He must continue to reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Christ is reigning on high because he's seated at the right hand of God. He's been exalted there, but he must continue that reign until all those enemies, which are the enemies of this world, are finally abolished because they're still operative, aren't they? The devil is still here. We still have a spiritual, spiritual struggle. And he even says the last enemy to be abolished is death. When he says he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet, he, he quotes Psalm 110, 1 that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make a footstool, your enemies, a footstool for your feet. Conquering kings would take the, the conquered king and they would bring it before the king and he would place his foot on his neck to show subjection by force. And that's what Jesus will do by force, by force. He will subject all things to himself. 
And the final enemy is death itself. Two things about death. Number one, death is an enemy. Death is not your friend, okay? And, and I know sometimes death ends suffering, and I know that uh, uh, it sometimes is a blessing when people pass on who know the Lord, obviously, but it is an enemy because it comes from sin. And sin is foreign to the world that God created. It is an interloper. And death is stalking every one of us, isn't it? In the Odyssey by Homer, it says, But the great leveler, leveler, death, not even the gods can defend a man, not even one they love, that day when fate takes hold and lays him out at last. The great leveler is death because we will all die. One man all died, Adam. And one day we will too. And it is stalking every one of us. It takes away your skin, takes away your youth, takes away your heart, your lungs, your vitality, your brain. And death comes for us, each and every one of us. There is no escape. Except through what? The resurrection of Christ and our identity in him. Death is an enemy, but second of all, death will be abolished. Notice he doesn't say death will be defeated because death is defeated right now in a sense. Death is defeated at the cross of Christ and we, have, we, are, we are united with Christ and we can live above death. But death still happens. Tomorrow we are having a memorial service for someone who has died. And many people will die today and tomorrow and the next day. Death is not abolished. It might be defeated by the cross, but we say that death is not abolished because it still exists among us. While we have the promise of overcoming death, it is still operative in this world. Just as the, the realm of rulers and principalities are all operative in this world, death is operative in this world. But one day... He will abolish death. That means it will be no more. The concept of death will be extinct, never to be experienced again. It will be some kind of a memory in heaven. I don't know what it will be like. But as long as the dead are still awaiting resurrection, it is a sign that death is still in operation. But it is defeated through Christ under his feet. Death and life. Which brings us to a couple of, of lessons here. You see very clearly that there are only two ways in life. We live in a binary world. There are only two ways. Everything is binary. Good and evil. Light and dark. Life and death. Male and female. Heaven and hell. Wide path that leads to destruction. Narrow that leads to life, sheep and goats, sin and righteousness. I could go on and on and on. That is the world that we live in. And Christ is already, always, above all rule and authority and power. And the death of demonic powers is still operative until Christ does away with them. That's the only power that exists out there. Sin and death, that's all there is. But Christ in righteousness will once and for all 
do away with those things because Christ completes the full victory of the mission of redemption, which is the restoration of all that was lost. Second of all, the world is not winning this battle. Seems like the world is winning, doesn't it? And we, we complain all the time how bad the world is getting, and it is getting worse all the time. We just had on Monday, we celebrated one day a year to honor those who have died for their country for our freedom. But now we have a whole month devoted to celebrating the license of sexual sin in all manner of deviousness. And we say, what has happened to our country? Adam, what is the cure? Christ. The dystopian or apocalyptic movies, mankind always ruins everything and there's always this danger. We're going to blow up the world and it'll be the end of all things. And it's always a, there's no hope. There's nothing to look forward to unless we get this thing right. And it's always a cautionary tale, isn't it? If we don't save the planet, if we don't learn to get along with one another, if we don't stop the proliferation of nuclear weapons, and those movies and those books always tell us that if we just do those things, we can stop the end of the world. Not so. Not so. Because the answer is spiritual and spiritual only. It's not politics. It's not artificial intelligence. These are not the answers. It's not ideology. It's not technology. It's not education is not military might the only thing that is the salvation of this world is the resurrection of jesus christ because none of these can solve the problem of sin and death again what is the world's answer to death go searching for the fountain of youth ponce de leon exercise more eat better all those are good things but it's not going to it's not going to keep you from dying right there is no answer to death save Christ and his defeat of death for you and for me, for us, for all who put their faith in him. And so therefore, we can be assured that someone is fighting for us. It is Christ. And as Christ was raised, we will certainly, we are guaranteed to be raised and that our enemies will be defeated by the resurrected Christ and will be under his feet. Amen? Amen. The final thing we see in verses 27 through 28 is that the, the fulfillment of resurrection and the idea of resurrection, Christ and ours, is going to ultimately restore God's glory. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have glory, but there's a, there's a glory that God had before the world was that was intact. It was, uh, it was not tainted by sin in any way. And right now there is this there is this infection of sin in the good thing that God created and it is going to be rooted out once and for all and the resurrection starts that verse 27 for he has put all things in subjection under his feet but when he says all things are put in subjection it's evident that he's accepted those who put in subjection to him Paul states that Christ has put everything under his feet except God that's what he's saying and he quotes Psalm 108.6 that says, 
You make him that is man to rule over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. And this is a psalm about man. Everything has been put under the feet of man. But the emphasis is on the man. Jesus is the man. Not us. God incarnate, the one who became a man, is the one who puts all things under his feet. Because God is subject to no one and no thing, right? God is subject to no one and no thing. He's not subject to the news. He's not subject to the president. He's not subject to Congress. He's not subject to kings or any other thing. He is subject only to himself. And one will either be under his feet in subjection or at his feet in worship. It's binary. One will either be under his feet in subjection or at his feet in worship. We have a new puppy in our house, and he's a lot of fun, and my goal is for him to be in subjection under my feet. (laughs) Willingly, of course, properly trained because he loves me. Not in subjection in the way that the enemies are, but as a dog worships his master. I welcome that worship with my new puppy. But that is our choice. We either worship him and we fall at his feet in adoration, in submission, in worship of our Savior who died and rose again, or we are stiff-necked and we end up in subjugation with his feet on our neck. God forbid that happens to anyone in this room. Verse 28 when all things are subjected, subjected to him, to Christ, excuse me, to the Father, it's hard to know the antecedents of the pronouns here, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. What this means is this. God the Father gave to the Son marching orders, didn't he? When, when he, he sent him to the world and, and Christ took on human flesh to be the Savior of the world. And he has done that. He lived a sinless life. He suffered and, and he died and he rose again and he's seated on high. But now his resurrection and his exaltation set in motion the final things, the end of all things. And God gave to Jesus the kingdom and it was subjected to, to, to Jesus. Jesus now fulfills that and he comes back to the Father after the, he abolishes all rule and authority and power and dominion and abolishes his enemies, death himself. And he turns around to the Father and he says, here is the kingdom and I bow to you. The Son bows to the Father. The son submits himself to the father, just as he always has. Does not mean they're not equal. It's not talking about the, we call the ontology of the Godhead. They are equal, but as we saw in the book of John, Jesus always did his father's will. And he comes back to the father, having left his throne millennia before, and he says, mission accomplished. It is done. And the final clause, the final phrase in this, in verse 28, so that God may be all in all. It's a funny phrase. Used, not funny, but it's one that Paul uses often. 
And it means that when all is accomplished, everything returns to the way it was. God is all in all. There's no more sin to deal with. There's no more death to deal with. The enemies are all abolished. Death is no more. And it's just like it was in the beginning when he created the heavens and the earth. And he said, it is good. Sin interrupted. And now it has taken all this time to fix it in Christ. Conclusion of the matter is this. We have the hope of the resurrection through Christ. We have the hope of the kingdom. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have the hope of God's glory. Christ in you. The hope of glory. The resurrection changes everything for us, ladies and gentlemen. Everything changes because of the resurrection. It's not some switch. Okay, your, your sins are forgiven. No, everything changes. This is where we live. We live in the resurrection. We live in the power of the resurrection. We live in the position of reigning with Christ because that's where we are. And I close with a reading from Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 where Paul takes these concepts and he fleshes them out for us where he says, I pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I want you to understand this so that you will know, really know, the hope of his calling, the riches of his glory and the inheritance in the saints and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That phrase again. And then he goes on to say, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirits that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Satan's realm, we all lived there. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath from Adam, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved. This is being born again. We're not raised yet, but we are in principle alive in Christ. Raised, and he raised us up with him. That's your identity. That's who you are, and that's where you are. Seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his kindness. It's where we are. That's who we are. 
It's where we live. It's the power in which we live. That is life changing. And I pray that it would be so for you. We are grateful, God, for the depth of your word and the words inscripturated for us by Paul the Apostle. May we take them to heart and live them out in the fullness in which you have desired them to be lived by faith and faith alone. Pray these things in Jesus' name.